I am the stone that the builder refused. I am the visual, the inspiration that made ladies sing the blues. I'm the spark that makes your idea bright. The same spark that lights the dark so that you can know your love from your right. I am the ballad in your box, the bullet in the gun, the inner glow that let you know to call your brother son. The story that just begun, the promise of what's to come. And I'ma remain a soldier till the war is won. won. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to the Warm Up Podcast, where I discuss all things health, wellness, and fitness related. I am your host, Chris Fuller. In tonight's episode, I'd like to discuss the history of physical fitness. All information contained in tonight's episode can be found at artofmanliness.com. So, fitness, as we know it today, seems to be a relatively modern invention. Something that started vaguely in the 1970s with jogging and jazzercise. But physical exercise obviously goes back much further than that. To a time where people wouldn't have thought of it as working out, but rather a way of life. Centuries and millennia ago, They did not have all the machines and weights and gyms that we have today, and yet they were in better shape than we are. To understand why this is, how we got to our modern fitness culture, and what we've lost along the way, it's helpful to take a look at the history of exercise. Let's begin with primal times. Move for your life. From the dawn of humankind till around 10,000 BC, men had a constant voice in the back of their head saying, run for your life. Physical development followed a natural path that was determined by the practical demands of life in the wild landscape as well as the vital need to avoid threats and seize opportunities for survival. One's movement demands consisted of locomotion, the manipulation of tools and natural objects like rocks, tree limbs, etc., and defense. To survive in a harsh environment, natural and human obstacles and enemies, early man had not only need to know how to run, but also walk balance, jump, crawl, climb, lift, carry, throw and catch things, and fight. We can also safely assume that playful or creative moves like early forms of dance were performed when bellies were full and no predators were around. The strength and mobility of early man was not developed through structured programs, methods, or schedules, but rather was forged in the daily, instinctive, necessity-driven practice of highly practical and adaptable movement skills. Today, the few hunter-gatherer tribes which still exist around the world would have no idea what primal fitness or a caveman workout is, as this kind of exercise remains deeply ingrained in their everyday lives. Neolithic Times Crop Culture Era Starting between 10,000 and 8,000 BC, the agricultural revolution was considered to be the dawn of civilization. Men's transition from nomadic hunter-gatherer to farmer led to dramatic changes in his physical activity. The numerous demand of growing food and raising cattle meant a lot of chores and a lot of daily labor for farmers. But these tasks were largely repetitive and required a very limited range of movement. At the same time, the need for performing a variety of complex movements like running, balancing, jumping, crawling, and climbing had greatly diminished. Such movements were rarely performed in a farming environment or were performed in much simpler ways. For example, climbing a ladder is safer and more constrained and predictable than climbing a tree. Ancient Times Prepared for War 
Between 4000 BC and the fall of the Roman Empire in 476 AD, civilizations rose and fell through war and conquest. Assyrians, Babylonians, Egyptians, Persians, and later on the Greeks and Romans all imposed physical training on boys and young men. The purpose? Preparing for battle. Ancient military training and similarities to the movements performed in nature by our caveman brethren, but with more structured and a different end goal. Young men practice fundamental skills such as walking and running on uneven terrain, jumping, crawling, climbing, lifting and carrying heavy things, throwing and catching, unarmed fighting and weapons training. Civilized populations valued physical culture for sport as well. Records of athletic competitions exist from ancient Egypt and, of course, the ancient Greeks who famously created the first Olympic Games. Not surprisingly, these early sports were all based on practical movement skills and were fundamentally related to the preparedness needed for war. The Greeks strove to best each other in running, sometimes with armor and a shield, jumping, throwing, sometimes using javelin and discus, and fighting, which included striking and wrestling. Outside of military training and sports, the Greeks and later the Romans celebrated the body's beauty and strength and embraced physical training as a philosophical ideal and an essential part of a complete education. They celebrated the idea of having a sound mind and a sound body. Physical culture started to rise beyond practical necessities to become a means to an end. An art de vivre. The Dark Ages. The rejection of the body. Lasting from the 5th to 15th century, the Middle Ages were a chaotic period with the succession of kingdoms and empires, waves of barbarian invasions, and devastating plagues. The teachings of Christianity spread the belief that the primary concern of one's lifetime was preparing for the afterlife. The body was seen as sinful and unimportant. It was a man's soul that was his true essence. Education was overwhelmingly connected to the church and focused on cultivating the mind rather than the body. Under feudalism, the dominant social system in medieval Europe, only nobles and mercenaries underwent physical training for military service. Similarly to ancient times, their training centered on natural movements and martial skill. The rest of the population were mostly peasants obliged to live on their lord's land and work extremely hard in the fields using rudimentary tools. Their exercise came through hard work and labor. The Renaissance Era A Fresh Start The Renaissance Era, from around 1400 to 1600, prompted a much greater and open interest in the body, anatomy, biology, health, and physical education. In 1420, Vittorino di Feltre, an Italian humanist and one of the first modern educators, opened a very popular school where, beyond the humanist subjects, a special emphasis was placed on physical education. In 1553, El Libro del Ejercicio Corporal y Sus Provechos by Spaniard Cristobal Mendez was the first book to exclusively address physical exercise and its benefits. In the book, exercises, games, and sports are classified, analyzed, and described from a medical standpoint. 
and advice is offered on how to prevent and recover from injuries resulting from these physical pursuits. Several chapters even provide specific advice on particular drills and games for women, children, and the elderly. 16 years later, Mercurialis, an Italian physician, published De Art Gymnastica. It was the culmination of his studies of classical and medical literature, particularly the ancient Greeks and Romans approach to hygiene, diet, and exercise and their use of natural methods for the treatment of disease, laying out the principles of physical therapy for the first time and accompanied with beautiful illustrations, even though they were largely creative speculations. It is considered the first book on sports medicine and strongly influenced the wave of physical education and training methods that started to emerge in Europe two centuries later. The old times, fit for the homeland. The Industrial Revolution, marking the transition from manual production methods to machine-based manufacturing processes began around 1760 and quickly generated social, economic, and cultural trends that changed the way people lived, worked, and of course, the way they moved. As people become more sedentary, a new movement towards international physical exercise rose. The movement was given a boost in the 19th century from the rise of nationalistic fervor in many countries in Europe. Staying healthy, fit, and ready to serve in battle became the point of civic duty and pride. Let's take a look in Europe. In 1774, Johann Bernadotte Basedo, influenced by Rossio's idea of the national, the natural human, opened Philanthropium in Germany, uh, which, with an emphasis on physical exercise and games, including wrestling, running, uh, horseback riding, fencing, vaulting, and dancing. Even the school's uniforms, which were often heavy and constricting during this time period, were made of comfortable. Were made more comfortable to allow students greater freedom of movement. Uh, this model inspired the foundation for many similar institutions, and physical training began to become more systematized and included in an integral part of the educational curriculum. Twenty years later, Gus Muth. Another German teacher and educator developed the basic principles of artistic gymnastics, of which he's regarded to be the great-grandfather of gymnastics. His Gymnastics für die Jugend, translated to Gymnastics for the Youth, the first systematic textbook in gymnastics was published in 1800 and became a standard reference for physical education uh, in the English-speaking world. In 1810, Frederick John came on the physical culture scene, known as the father of gymnastics. He was an essential pioneer in physical education, and his ideas spread throughout Europe and America. A German gymnastics educator and ardent novelist uh, who had lived through Napoleon's invasion of his country, he felt the best way to prevent another such incursion was to help his people develop their bodies and minds. To this end, he led young men on fresh air expeditions and taught them gymnastics and calisthenics to restore their physical and moral strength. In 1811, Jean opened the first Turnplatz or open air gymnasium in Berlin. His gymnastics movement, then called the Turnavian, 
spread rapidly throughout the country. And in 1816, he published Die du Teach turn Kinst, the German gymnast, dedicated to his gymnastic system. In addition to these contributions to physical culture, Jan invented the pommel horse and horizontal and parallel bars and prompted the use of gymnastic rings. The physical culture festival he sponsored attracted as many as 30,000 enthusiasts, but the essence and end goal of the gymnastics and calisthenics methods were above all practical and functional, not artistic necessarily. He advocated the practice of the traditional natural movements like running, balancing, jumping, climbing, and so on. Well informed of this German model, as well as the ancient traditions of athletics, Swede Per Henwick Ling developed principles of physical development, emphasizing the integration of the perfect body, development with muscular beauty and balance. By contrast with the German system, the Swedish system prompted light gymnastics, employing little if any apparatuses. Ling invented wall bars and focusing on calisthenics, breathing and stretching exercises as well as massage. Swedish gymnastics had four categories, pedagogic, military, medical, and aesthetic. All movements had to be performed correctly and collectively in a freestanding fashion under a leader's direction, of course, which differed from the predominant, more mobile, strenuous, and practical German approach. Aspects of this method can still be traced in some modern programs of physical training. Around this exact same time, Spaniard Francisco Amorosos founded the Military Gymnastic School in Madrid. They moved to Paris and established the National Gymnastic Civil and Military School in 1819. In 1830, he published a guide to physical gymnastics and moral education. After being removed from his position as leader of the army's physical training program, he opened a popular civilian gymnastics hall in Paris and became the initiator of physical education in France and Spain. In 1847, French physical culture pioneer and strongman Hippolyte Triot founded a huge gymnasium in Paris where the Burgos, aristocrats, and spirited youth joined in enthusiastic pursuit of fitness in the 1870s, I believe. Yeah, in the 1870s, after the loss of Alcer Lorraine to the Germans, the already budding nationalistic mood in France exploded. Physical education became a principal force in French schools as battalions of young men were trained to avenge the country. In Scotland, the Highland Games began during the romantic trend of the 1830s and included traditional physical challenges distinctive to Scottish culture, such as caber tossing, hammer throwing, and the stone shot put, along with running, wrestling, and jumping. In England, Charles Darwin's concept of survival of the fittest gave that country's nascent physical culture movement more of a boost. Englishmen wanted to be strong enough to rise to the top of the nature's hierarchy. In 1849, 
the first English athletic competition was conducted at the Royal Military Academy. Scott Archibald McLaren opened a well-equipped gymnasium at the University of Oxford in 1858, where he trained 12 army officials who then implemented his physical training regiment into the British Army. It is also worth mentioning that Czech Sokol Movement, founded in 1862, the youth sports and gymnastics organization was inspired by the German Turinovin Gymnastics Movement and provided physical, moral, and intellectual training for the nation through fitness programs, mostly centered on marching drills, fencing, and various forms of weightlifting, lectures, group outings, and massive gymnastics festivals. This training extended to men of all economic classes and eventually to women and ultimately to the entire Slavic world. The Polish Falcons from 1867 had similar aspirations. In addition to physical training and aesthetic contests, such cultural groups often sponsored national or traditional dances, songs, and language revivals. Everywhere in Europe, people seem to develop a fitness culture rooted in their ethnic or national identity. As Europe entered the 20th century, French Navy officer and physical educator George Herbert played a prominent role in moving physical culture forward and did so by taking a cue from the cultures of the past, having studied the principles espoused by his predecessors, including John, John and Amosos. He pioneered his own natural method. His method was entirely based on natural movement skills, such as walking, running, balancing, jumping, crawling, climbing, manipulative skills like lifting and throwing, and self-defense, all of which were often practiced on obstacle courses. Herbert was responsible for the physical training of all sailors in the French Navy and then opened the largest and most modern indoor-outdoor training center in Reims in 1913. Herbert published his first book, L'Education Physique au l'Entertainment Complete par la Méthode Naturelle, which translates to Physical Education or Complete Training by the Natural Method in 1912, followed by many other works of the same subject. Uh, this insights modern man can glean from these seminal works will be the subject continuing forward. How about in the United States? Since the threat of foreign invasion was never as great in the United States as it was in Europe, the need to prepare for war was not as acute, and thus an emphasis on physical culture came later in this country. Catherine Beecher was one of the first pioneers to create an awareness in fitness in America. As a strong advocate for the inclusion of physical education in schools, as well as daily exercise for both sexes, she developed a program of calisthenics that were performed to music. When Beecher established the Hartford Female Seminary in 1823, it was the first major U.S. educational institution for women and implemented physical education as part of the program. At the same time, European physical culture traditions started to take root in America. Many turns, German practitioners of Jean's gymnastic system immigrated to the U.S. and in 1824, German scholar Charles Beck opened an outdoor gymnasium in Massachusetts that was similar to John Turnplatz. In the first 
gym in the nation and hosted the first school's gymnastics program in this country. Many other Turners became active in the American public education system as strongly influenced uh, strongly influenced it by opening clubs and teaching gymnastics in various states. One of the most notable practitioners of this European tradition was Dudley Allen Sargent, who is considered to be the founder of physical education here in the United States. From 1879 until his retirement in 1919, he was a director of the Hemingway Gymnasium at Harvard University, uh, where he taught the, the German and Swedish systems that he had learned as a young man. Sargent also challenged the Victorian view on females as feeble and prone to fainting and encouraged freedom of dress and vigorous activities for girls and women. Sargent invented the multiple gymnasium apparatus, uh, which was created, uh, which created a universal test for strength, speed and endurance in 1902. He also wrote numerous articles and books on physical education and warned that without solid physical education programs, people will become fat, deformed and clumsy. The big takeaway from tracing the development of physical culture in both Europe and the U.S. during the period is that these gym that these gymnastic systems were very similar and mostly based on practical approaches, gymnastics or calisthenics at the time did not primarily convey the idea of acrobatics, but more utilitarian movement skills and the strength training that was essential to military preparedness and real life situations. The rise of the modern fitness industry. The 20th century marked the rise of specialized competitive sports, as well as the emergence of a well-organized and thriving fitness market and industry. At the very beginning of the 20th century, at the same time Georges Herbert developed and promoted his natural method, another Frenchman, Professor Edmond de Bonnet, managed to make physical exercise and strength training fashionable through the publication of journals. He used photography to capture male and female athletes and by opening a chain of exercise clubs. This laid a strong foundation for physical culture in Europe but also for fitness as an industry. Debonet's system was a reaction against the decadence of the Belle Epoch, during which people lived without thinking on their physical condition and health. At the height of his popularity, he had more than 200 fitness centers and several of the famous early strongmen and bodybuilders were proponents of the Debonet method. Being rather expensive, his fitness centers were frequent and by high class were frequented by high class French and European societies before World War One. After the war, the working class also started to gain access to the physical culture movement. During this same time period in the US, Bernard McFadden came to prominence as an American physical culture guru and health living advocate. He recommended the minimalist lifestyle based on time spent in nature, daily vigorous physical exercise, and the elimination of alcohol, tea, coffee, white bread from one's diet. McFadden started to market a well-mounted muscle developer that he had created and founded one of the first muscle magazines, Physical Culture, in 1899. 
He staged the first physique contest in America in 1903 and similar competitions in 1921 and 1922 fostered the rise of the physical culture's greatest icon, Charles Atlas. By 1935, McFadden's publishing empire had a total of 35 million readers and he died a multi-millionaire in 1955. Debonair and McFadden can be seen as the precursors of the health and fitness industry as we know it. From there, we entered the age of confusion, the age of fitness as business as and, and its many fads with current aesthetic driven bodybuilding approaches, the use of increasingly sophisticated exercise machines and gyms, home equipment the huge supplement business, countless magazines, books, DVDs, and even now the emergence of tech-based exercise with numerous fitness apps. Over the course of a century, thousands of methods and programs have emerged, all promising to get you in the best shape of your life in the quickest amount of time possible, with results generally being limited to improvements in your physical appearance. This short But here's a short but simple sampling of methods and the devices that people have given millions of dollars to the past century. Uh, The vibrating belt, Jack LaLanne's TV tips and juicing, Jane Fonda's aerobics, uh, Richard Simmons sweating into the oldies videos, the Bowflex home system, uh, Thighmaster, eight minute abs and ab rollers, Billy Blanks' Tybo, Pilates, spinning, uh, P90X, We Fit, power plates, sauna suits, power waistbands, and many more things that we've all seen people walking around in the gym or having around in our homes. If unregulated gimmicks sit in one side of the modern fitness dichotomy, on the other reside the study of exercise as a science. Exercise has been analyzed and quantified in laboratories and numerous amounts of data have been amassed on the effects of movement on the human body. The professionals who make a career out of sifting through this data and making recommendations based on it are regulated through numerous organizations and associations, councils, federations, and commissions that a lot of professional uh, fitness men and women belong to, such as the Academy of Applied Personal Training Education, American College of Sports Medicine, American Council on Exercise, International Sports Science Association, International Fitness Professionals Association, National Academy of sports medicine and many many more the current state of physical fitness culture lost in fitness as we reflect on the evolution of fitness over the centuries and the different facets present in our modern culture it is well to ask ourselves what have we lost and what have we gained obviously Much good has come out of these recent developments. There's widespread awareness of the importance of regular exercise. Nearly every community has a gym where people can work out and we can understand more about how the human body works and responds to physical training then than we ever have before. Yet, despite the plethora of health and fitness methods, programs and resources, the general population has never been so sedentary and out of shape. A recent World Health Organization report indicates that the life expectancy in the U.S. dropped for the first time since 1993. The health of modern people is declining despite high advanced medical technologies and in spite of the thriving health and fitness industry. How could that be? A huge part of it is motivation. 
people are simply not as motivated to move their body and get healthy as they were in the past. We live in a society where the inability to operate one's body in a practical and effective manner is no longer an embarrassing condition. We celebrate being unhealthy. In my opinion, the health and fitness industry as a whole, no matter how cutting edge or revolutionary each new program claims to be, has failed to get the majority of people to value it, to practice it, and to enjoy physical exercise, aside from a few exceptions. I believe that the industry has a wide, has widely contributed to spreading a limited perception of what health and fitness are and to people turning their backs on it. Overwhelmingly, the most common perception of what it means to be fit and primary motivation for exercise is the look fit. It's no longer about having a healthy body that can actually do stuff that's practical to real life. Overwhelmingly, the most common view on how exercise is that you need machines for building cardio and to build muscle and strength so you look good and maybe a bit of stretching to the mix. There's equipment for that too, obviously. Throw in some vitamins and supplements and you're healthy and fit. Exercise is a mere chore for some people, not a pleasure. It's something people have to force themselves to do and not an expression of who they are. This is what I advocate for as a fitness professional, as an exercise therapist, as a kinesiotherapist, as a clinically exercise physiologist. But last but not least, many who try to address the fitness needs are confused as to what modality to choose. We have lost clarity and simplicity. We have lost the sense of practicality. We have lost naturalness. There has to be a new paradigm for the future. I see two radically different paradigms of the future of exercise on this horizon. On one hand, we're entering the age of ever more advanced machines that remove people from real life, nature, and what their bodies are naturally designed to do primal movements i see the age of fitness tech which with connected gadgets and amps and sensors and wires the age of biohacking and exercise efficiency offering promises like get fit in three minutes each week with exercise the era of ubiquitous self-quantification with people obsessively checking out their data, curves on the screen, trying to manage their health and fitness in some of the most scientific ways possible. I, What I see starts to resemble technology, transhumanistic approach to the body's health. Is this really where we should be headed? Despite everything that the health and fitness industry provides, people have never been so physically inactive. So should we accept the answer to the predicament to come from even more varied or more technologically advanced programs or equipment? Or will the solution come from a different mindset, a similar approach and practice and overall new culture? I'll leave you with that. This has been the warm up podcast. I am your host, Chris Fuller. Thank you for listening. And until next time, keep moving. Peace.